0: You're listening
1: to the Mojo Record Club. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo Digital Editor Chris Catchpole and the frontman of the choral, James Skelly. Hello, gang. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Now, <laughs> since th- Thank you, that was very good Now, since their earliest beginnings in mid-90s Hoyle on the Wirral James and the Coral have established themselves as one of the UK's finest bands Blending the psychedelia of Liverpool, North Wales and California With their own unique conceptual lyrical perspective To create what can only be described as an astonishing run of 12 studio albums Including their latest two, both released on the same day the spaghetti western Hollywood psych of the Sea of Mirrors And the piratical country radio broadcast Of Holy Joe's Coral Island Medicine Show As a taster, here is the late summer lament of That's Where She Belongs Written by James Skelly And released on Run On Records Standing in
0: the sun That's where she belongs
1: James, welcome to the show. I last spoke to you, I think, in 2021 around the release of your double concept LP, Coral Island. Now, barely two years later, and you've released two more concept LPs. I mean, the most the first and most obvious question is: where do the ideas keep coming from?
0: Um, I think Coral Island gave us confidence to do these. But i think we've always kind of had concepts going on in the albums Mm. but maybe not hung our hat on them as much as we have i think coral island probably gave us the confidence to do that on these and also i realized it was kind of a way where you could take look at yourself from a distance with through the concept which was and uh find it easier to finish and help them Which was one of the things we
1: talked about, wasn't it? Kind of using the themes of the record to kind of reflect in on yourself and kind of, you know, sort of just just kind of make it
0: autobiographical, but not overtly so. Yeah, and, you know, when... I don't know whether it's like maybe it's a northern thing, but sometimes you don't want to just go... You don't want to go on and be like, this happened to me or that happened to me, or you don't want to speak about it. Yeah. So you have to find a way to frame it sometimes that you can then express how you're feeling. And I think through so through concepts, I find that easier. And I think the concept, as you say, the concepts
1: have always been there, but I think often the concepts have been there sonically for people to pick up on, like kind of in terms of the production you brought to play on a particular record. It was kind of there for the faithful to pick out in a way, wasn't it? So, but as you say... More recently, they've kind of been, the conceptual notion of it has been front and centre.
0: Yeah, I think now, as much as um, creatively, it's kind of a good, the medium, the way it is now, you can get music across, is actually better for us. Now, there's a whole other debate of money and that we won't talk about, that's a different thing. But on a creative level, streaming and the way you can do it is actually better for us like when we were younger and we did Night night Freaks, that I think that kind of would have worked better now, how we've done Holy Joe, yeah. if you know what I mean. Do
1: you mean that people can access the kind of entirety of your back catalogue and get a sort of feel of exactly who you are?
0: Yeah, and, and also I think through like social media, you can you can get them into your world on a daily basis yeah and you yeah. know we were maybe a bit late late in the day to that but I don't I didn't see my space didn't really feel like that at the time and I think now the way it is now it seems kind of a perfect medium for us creatively the way and on being on an independent label and doing our own thing it's just a good place for us, really. We are comfortable and we feel in charge of it. But also, I think you've changed as well, haven't
1: you? You've changed as a band in terms of that. You've lost that kind of sense of, you know, inward, you know, for want of a better phrase, sort of paranoid distrust, yeah. you know, and kind of yeah. that sense of like... And also, as you, you know, as you would admit yourself, you know, when you kind of were, were too insular, too, you know, smoking too much and things like that. So you're not you were kind of more distrustful of that world. And I think as you've grown up, you've embraced that idea of kind of the benefits of just kind of looking outward as opposed to looking
0: inward. Yeah, we'd make a crazy video and just laugh at it ourselves. But, you know, maybe too paranoid uh, to... I think half of it was because at the time we didn't really have a manager early on. Alan had Delta Sonic, so we didn't quite have a manager. So... It would we. so your first instinct is to protect everything in a way. And because yeah. you're young, you think, mm. if I make a mistake now, I'll be known for this forever. Yeah. But once you're 40 or 43, you think, well, it's too late <laughs> for me now. <laughs> Whatever I am now yeah. is what I am. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely.
2: You mentioned um, sort of um Coraline giving you the confidence to, to do these records and, and it being more, you know, Properly conceptual. How far do you sort of get before you start writing the songs? I, I think I read somewhere that you'd even been talking about with sea of mirrors designing posters and thinking about what the film
0: looked like before you recorded. Like,
2: uh, yeah. how much do you flesh that out before you start making well, the
0: record? What happened was we'd finished Coral Island was finished over a year before we put it out, and um, we, I think in the and that was going to be two albums. And then in the end, we just kind of gave up in lockdown and thought, just put it out. But luckily, everyone had put their albums back. So we just had this free run at it. And it was like a perfect storm for us, really. And it all... And I think everyone was kind of looking back and reflecting in a way. So it's sort of that... We were in that time, and then as soon as Coral Island sort of came out and started doing well, we we were just writing other stuff because we were just really buzzing off it and the reaction and stuff. It was like, oh, people have remembered we exist. So it kind of gave us a boost, and we'd, we'd written enough that was an album, but then we split it into the two albums because they were lyrically different. Then from there, <clears throat> then we fleshed it out once I showed, because this was just me and Ian at this point, really. Then once we showed Nick and everyone, then everyone brought their ideas in. And then the ideas kind of got embellished from there. But it would be like half the albums were like written and recorded, like guide vocal, rhythm track. And then from there it grew out out of that.
2: On on these two records, how did having two albums simultaneously work on? How did they kind of inform one another? You know, if you if you're well, working on stuff for Holy Joe, how might that have affected of Mirrors or vice versa? Well,
0: it allowed us to sort of it in the same way. Coral Island did what I learned off It is because I can't really concentrate on just one thing, or I'm not that. Sometimes I'll just write a song and it'll be in a different mood. So it was. It allowed us to like place the and, and have a total mood lyrically on both albums without sort of trying to mishmash it and it sounding confusing as a whole like maybe some of our older albums maybe you've got that if I was criticizing you said in a recent
1: interview with Amer- with an American magazine James that both albums were also about filling gaps in in your catalog i e kind of like you know what haven't we done yet what yeah. you know what haven't we kind of you know where where are the spaces but in relation to that you said you know that you can't imagine making another album as the coral that this might be it obviously that was a, a while ago but do you still
0: feel the same way yeah it's tempting and also I, I, I don't mean it as in we'll never release another album i just mean in that way now of what you have to do to make an album yeah. not just die <laughs> so, you know so it's like yeah. like who's going to write about the corals 13th album like to so what you have to just kind of put yourself yeah. through because it was locked down i felt like right i'll never get this chance again to go to this level of intensity yeah. on music with having a family and doing yeah. everything, and I'm working, producing everything, so I feel like if you can't do that again, and then all what you have to do to promote an album now, because yes. if you're not you're not a big streaming band, then you've got to sell vinyl. You've got to have different types of vinyl because you want to if you're gonna do that, which also is good and it brings money back in to music and into record shops, but it's a lot. It's a it's a hell of a lot. To do and to get all together when you've got loads of other stuff on. I mean, in that way, I can't imagine doing that again. But I can imagine getting an album together and recording it in a week, and it was all live, and you record the great album or an acoustic type thing, and putting a thousand out. I can't imagine that. Yeah. And maybe in at the end of the decade or in, even in five years, I might be like, right, I'm bored, I'm ready. But in this moment, that is how it feels. I mean in a way
1: kind of I think you touched on that earlier that Coral Island in terms of its sense that it was kind of nostalgic and and insular and about kind of a world an island kind of removed from the rest of the world it chimed so well with I think what people wanted in the wake of lockdown didn't it
0: Yeah and I also like the idea of taking unfashionable things like nostalgia and trying to do mm. something artistic with it or like even yeah. spaghetti western or country yeah. music, how that seems yeah. they're unfashionable things. Yeah. You know, I love them, but they're on yeah. but I'd like this idea of I can be down on nostalgia and I have been. And, and 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 there's a legitimate reason to be. But then there's another side where how many times of when you've been down have you thought about something or you thought about your mates or something you did where nostalgia has then had a positive effect and maybe made you go out or do something? Yeah. I
2: mean, and and it's,
0: it was like, I kind of like trying to take something unfashionable and make someone like it who wouldn't usually like it, if you know what I mean. I find That's it a challenge. Yeah. And sometimes you fail and sometimes you succeed. And Holy Joe, you've
2: got John Sin that you guys have known for a while. But uh, amazing timing. You've also got Killian Murphy. Uh, on on uh, on the record, just as he's in the the biggest film of the summer. How long how,
0: how long how did you guys know how long have you known him for? I, I don't know him. Um, Sean O'Hagan, who co-produced the album, he did all the arrangements. He did. Oh, right, right, he right, right. did his okay. first soundtrack for the first film he was in. So I think Killian Murphy's oh, best right. friend is like one of Sean's best friends, and he just we were just looking. We I think we tried to contact Franco Nero one time, I was trying to get it translated into Italian. Um, Terence Hill. Wow, fantastic! And, uh, and, and had all these ideas, and then and then we came to it was like, look, the records finished. What are we, I've I've got this bit that Nick's written. I think it's brilliant. Who's going to read it? And then Sean just said, "Oh, mate, is Killian Murphy any good?" And I was like, <laughs> "He's a good actor, like <laughs> yeah." <laughs> and then. <laughs> I kind of forgot about it. And then he, he just, Killian Murphy, emailed me and said, do you want to jump on the phone? I, I love the coral, And we just... Uh, oh, fantastic. And we sort of oh, spoke. It. it was more like, will you help us out? How do you find a character? How do I make this? And I explained to him the idea of I was sort of into this thing of you know, when times cross over, like the silence go into talking films or even the early talking films, like the horror movies then become, the effects become so much better and they're old within a week. And I, the people who get left behind within that, I was into that idea because I like this, of, and I was sort of focusing on Bella Lugosi, how he was like, I mean, he was the oh. sexiest god of Hollywood, wasn't he? And then next minute he's in an Ed Wood film, which sort of is you know, it's become like a cult film, but it, it isn't, you know, if you were looking, he, so how's he looking back of how he's got there was sort of my idea. Yeah. And I was explaining that to him with sort of saying that my reference point was like, if Richard Yates wrote the screenplay to this, to this sort of doomed Western where everything's going wrong on the set, and then I left it with him.
1: The reference points I kind of picked up on are the last movie, the Dennis Hopper film, yeah. the last movie. Yeah, definitely. And but but also I think um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's an element of that the um...
1: the sense of an actor from a previous age. Yeah, a, at yeah. A, at a time, yeah. when he's at in a the time t- of
0: change. Yeah, when he's in the trailer. Left yeah. Behind. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I've I've always. I've always been obsessed with Buster Keaton as well. And the way it was like, he did have a great acting, but it just didn't, it never really worked for him the same again. And then he falls into alcoholism and then what they end up in, kind of, yeah, looking back, he, he's doing it when he's, uh, he's look, they're making him dress like Dennis Hopper in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, aren't they? Yeah. And it's yes. like, uh, and he's just thinking the Westerns that he likes, he doesn't get them. Yeah. Which I can yeah. see why, because I do like the spaghetti westerns, but it's more about just using that genre. It's not really. Yeah. I kind of watched them I, I, to laugh at them. After the time I'm laughing, and there's like some bits are amazing. I was kind of thinking of AI as well, of like, if you were going to use it and you typed all this stuff in, what would come out? Yeah. If you know, Absolutely, if you know what yeah. I mean.
1: This kind of weird
0: hybrid. Yeah, yeah, because it's more about like the set, everything going wrong on the set, and the and the producer and the everyone trying to deal with that, and these are things that I don't know how much it translates in the music. Cause the, the album probably is, just stands up on its own, but they are kind of discussions that when it's coming to like the nitty gritty at the end and you've got to finish, and there was a song on it, Dream River, and Nick like wrote the song like a Grateful Dead song. And then I changed those chords because i have been working with Sean to chords I knew he could do strings with more sort of mm. expressive. Yeah. So then I rewrote some of the lyrics and I just couldn't get them past him. And then in the end, it was like, I was like, right, I need to call on Arthur Lee and the character of this, this, yeah, the film. And once I did that, then he was just like, oh, that's great. And I never, I don't ever want to hear it again, because I had to write them yeah. But But it was in three-part harmony, so I had to write them again. Then we had to record all of the, for the third time, we had to record all of the three-part harmonies and track them all again. Nick hadn't played anything on the chair, and he was just like, oh, yeah, it's good, that, yeah. And that was it. <laughs> Perfect. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with me, with me, with me. James Skelly, 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 Skelly,
1: The album that you've brought in to talk about today has, um, a, in a way, has a similar story of somebody who kind of like has his moment in the spotlight and then everything falls apart for him. It's um, Don't Be Concerned, the debut 1966 release by the Baltimore folk pop singer Bob Lind. Before we start, here is what is almost certainly the most well-known track from the album, unfortunately made famous in the UK by the Irish light entertainer and folk singer Val Doonican, but this is the original version. This is Elusive Butterfly, written by Bob Lind, produced by Jack Nietzsche, and released on World Pacific Records in
2: 1966. Don't be concerned it
1: will not harm you. It's only me pursuing something I'm not sure of. Across my dreams, with
0: nets of wonder, I chase the bright, elusive butterfly of love. James, um... How and when did you first discover Bob Lind? I think it might have been. I remember bands used to do these late night CDs and Pulp did one. And I'm I'm sure Drifter Sunrise was on it. There was that. And I always remember that and Dory Previn, The Lady With The Braid. And those two songs really just blew my mind. And then you sort of investigate further from there.
1: What was it about, I mean, both those songs, but specifically the Bob Lind track that kind of... That, you know, you heard something in it that you hadn't
0: heard before. I think there's like, um, it's like an unhinged easy listening. I would say that might yeah. be my favourite genre of music. That's I a like. per-
1: perfect description for both those artists, <laughs> isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think people who sort of explore the spaces in between, I'm always drawn to that, you know, to find. Yeah. And and the, I think it's probably... An unpopular genre, which is why they're always doomed people. But it's like they might have this pop sensibility, but lyrically it'll be, yeah, they're exploring these spaces between, yeah, the sun and the shadows. Maybe. Is I mean, it's weird with Bob Lind.
1: His breakout year, 1966, was also his his absolutely worst year because following the success, huge success of uh, the single "Elusive Butterfly." Um, Verve Folkways, who he'd previously recorded for, released a bunch of his um, discarded demos and they overdubbed strings on them and they called it the elusive Bob Lind. And so lots of people bought that album instead of buying his real studio album and then were hugely disappointed by it. And then him and Jack Nietzsche Rush released a second LP, Photographs of Feeling, um, off which there was a huge amount of uh, flop singles because basically World Pacific were hoping that Lind would have another smash hit, which he never did. Mm, He moved in to live with Jack Nietzsche. He got heavily into booze and weed and speed. And then he dropped out completely, got uh, completely kind of paranoid distrust of the record industry and, um, and dropped out and moved to live in New, New Mexico. There's a, I was reading an interview with him online And he said, by 1969, my career was ice cold. I despised the pasty faced lawyers who ran the music industry and they despised me right back. I had poisoned my relationship with World Pacific and I was well known as a drunk, a stoner and an all out pain in the ass. A reputation I richly deserved. So, I mean, like kind of that thing that you say, the dark side to easy listening. Bob Lind in a way encapsulates it completely.
0: He does, and I think, I, I honestly believe he's he's one of the most underrated lyricists of all, of all time. His lyrics are, they're rich, they're baroque.
1: I mean, he's quite critical of them. He will say that they're kind of, certainly the lyrics on those first two albums, that they're overly flowery and everything. But what do you he's like wrong... about them? What are you drawn to about I, them?
0: I just what? <laughs> Does one when yesterday sets fire to your ever after, you just think if you're not that's just Yet. it's everything that everyone knows what that is, but it's it's so poetic the way, you know yeah. you'll say the hand of autumn undresses the trees just just perfect you could quote every line. You know what what's this yeah. one on? I've got this one? You might have seen me running through the long abandoned ruins of the dreams you left behind. Like It's incredible, th- isn't it? It is. It's like when when you actually read them, you they're, they're as good as anyone. And they're just beautiful.
1: Jack Nietzsche's arrangements as well. What do you I mean, they seem really he seemed to get Bob Lind and understand him. What are your thoughts on the arrangements yeah, that I, go with I see, those
0: songs? Yeah, I see it as a collaboration. Definitely, the album. Yeah. And you can see that, like, both have been... And I think he might have made Boblin cut three verses out of Elusive Butterfly. Um, and I see it in the kind of same thing as when Jack Neish worked with Mig um, DeVille. I think he might have moved in with him. Yeah, They almost become... When he understands an artist, he seems like one of those producers who, who he becomes part of them. And and that's definitely what's going on on this album. You, you you know he's obviously learned from Spectre, but he's one of the greatest in his own right.
2: Also, I was wondering. Um, it was obviously a record that you've loved for a number of years. But how much, either, I suppose, consciously or not, do you did you think that this record sort of fed into the the sound of Sea of Mirrors? Because I think it really does have that. You know what you were talking about, wanting to have this sort of Western soundtrack that had songs in a bit of a Lee Hazelwood sort of thing. It really sort of, you mentioned Drift of Sunrise. I think that's a song that could have sat on Sea of Mirrors.
0: Yeah, I think I've always wanted to make a chamber pop album in a way, but you have to find a way to frame it where it isn't just we've made a chamber pop album. Um, (laughs) So there's definitely elements of that. And uh, there's there's a lot of, there's, there's probably, might be our most reverbed out record um because a lot of the times to make reverb we'll use delay but on this one we actually used a lot of reverb especially on the bass it's very easy to get those
1: to try and do the uh, incorporate those references and get them wrong but i think you you know your influences you know your bobby gentry albums you know your lee hazelwood albums and everything and so you kind of you know that kind of capital records late 60s production sound and obviously sean does as well so and you kind of listen to it and it, the thing i love about it, it there's nothing overt in how you do it it's almost like there's kind of it's kind of what you were saying about how in your early albums the concept was there for the faithful to pick up on and they picked up on it in the sound, the production sound of the records, not in any overt theme, and even though these albums do have an overt theme, there's another theme running through them is it, it, which is how they sound in terms of their production. you know you can hear that sort of l h i capital records sound running through it,
0: yeah, I've sort of we purposely gone for that, where I think. I like to sort of do that, but put on where if you did put it on next to an old one, you'd be like, oh, it does, the choral one does sound like a new record. It has yes. that, Yeah, it, it has that, because um, you don't want to go too far into that, like there would never... You don't want to wa- go down the road of no. pastiche. No, I wanted to have like a low end that you couldn't possibly have on an old record on, yeah. but yeah. with those type of sounds... But it's it took quite a while to work out how you do that without it sounding harsh. And to be honest, a lot of it, a lot of it we'd recorded because Past Street had closed down. So a lot of it was recorded in what's basically a bedroom, really. We'd set up a makeshift yeah. studio in the rehearsal spaces. So there would be a heavy metal band rehearsing. We'd have to stop, then play this quiet music. But this, uh, I was speaking to someone about the other day, but I think... Grand ideas work best with under limitations. It's like, yeah, that's Phil Spector. Without limitations, it's Celine Dion, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> it's like, so, yes, so, which, it was sort of we'd like to put the limitations on ourselves, but then after it, and because we'd done it all and it was very hard to monitor. You couldn't, you know, hear the low end and everything. Where we were, there was no proper studio. We didn't know any of the rooms. So I, I'd, the last Blossoms album I made, I made it all on a tape machine. And the guy who mastered it was suggested by Craig Silvey, who does, he's done our stuff before. He's done, he does loads of stuff. He done Porter's head. And he suggested this master of Greg Calby, who'd done, I think he mastered Graceland, Born to Run. um. And he mastered, he mastered damn the torpedoes. So we got in touch with him and asked him for help. And if he'd, he's basically the, one of the greatest in the world. And if he'd do it, do it us for a deal. And and he did. And he really helped us out. And uh, he he really brought the record together. At the end, sort of the, the top end and the low end. On the gear he had, we would never be able to do that at that time. Basically, you know,
2: doing something quite in a lo-fi way but then, you know, getting the guy that did Tom Petty and some of the, you know, the biggest, luscious records to master it, bringing out something a bit more high for Denny you've done a bit more...
0: Yeah, well, they um, they have the gear that is, you could never imagine affording. So, if you don't put the real low and the real top on it and you let him do that, he's going to be put it on in a professional way that, you know, that you, that you have to know you, know. you know what I mean. You can't have an ego and think I can do that. You know he's the best. Let him do it. That's the main thing that John Leckie taught me when I worked with him. If you haven't got the gear, let the guys you do put it on. Put that real top on and the real low on it, and that helped take it into a into a more cinematic level. I think.
1: Have you heard Boblin's the it's it's It was wrong to call it a follow-up album because it was kind of very much when he couldn't get work with anyone else. But the album that came out in 1971, Since There Were Circles, have you heard that, James?
0: Yeah, yeah, I really like... Um, the Zach out of Dream Machine. There's a young band called Dream Machine and uh, he plays percussion with us. He loves that one. Funnily enough, that's the one that he's really into and he was talking to me about yeah. it the other day. So I, I hadn't listened to it for a while and I put it on and it is really good. It's better than I remembered it. It's got a much more sort of frayed
1: quality to it. It's not as lush, it's not as rich, but also, you know, as he now admits himself, he was drunk while he was recording it. And so there's a kind of looseness to the record, but also kind of you, you've you got this amazing cast of characters who he's playing with, because you've got Gene Clark, Doug Dillard, Bernie Leadon, John Buck Wilkin, Carol Kay. You know, so he's playing with this incredible sort of group, but... At the same time, it's a very kind of frayed and loose-feeling record.
0: I would imagine that that they were all quite frayed and loose as well, sounding by those characters, especially... (laughs) I don't know, Gene Clark went really... so. Gene Clark went... um, At one point, he went completely sober, didn't he? I think it was to write no other. I think he wrote a lot of that. And he was really sober. Was that around that time, or was it when he was sort of completely off the rails? It would have been, I think, it, it would have been around that time, but I have no way now because I think I think
1: Gene only uh, contributes harmonica on it. So I think you right, can be, right. I think he could be sober, there or, in aura. sober or drunk when you <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah.
1: We played um, "Elusive Butterfly," which, as I say, is the most well-known track and possibly overly done. I mean, it's been it's been covered by I think over two hundred people. So, what would be the track, James, that you would play um, from the album that would that you would use to sort of try and win people over to its its beauty and its its wonder?
0: Daylan, I think Daylan is my is probably my favourite track. You know, it's a elusive butterfly. I, I think the just as soon as it comes in, um, Daylan is a mermaid on the sand, reaching out with helpless hands. For someone to understand i just out uh, you the imagery as soon as you see it it's like an imagery of helplessness and beauty All let's say it's like everyone wants to help that person don't they but uh, the melody it's it's there's um just uh, yeah i just think it's a beautiful song and everyone should hear it
1: okay this is daylan written by bob lind produced by jack nietzsche and released on World Pacific Records in
0: 1966. Daylan Is a mermaid on the sand Reaching out with helpless hands For someone
1: to understand
2: Sometimes I get
1: James, thank you so much for bringing that record on. It's a a record that I haven't listened to in ages because the one I heard most recently was Since There Were Circles and that's because it got recently reissued. And so I'd been playing that to death. And to go back to that debut album and just to hear how confident and just kind of assured he is in terms of his songwriting and his lyricism and it's kind of a real tragedy in a way that kind of he was one of those people who just like that massive immediate pressure of the of the of the your first single being your biggest hit was something that he just reeled away from and couldn't deal with you know and kind of
0: no it could it can be a curse that i would it, you know Ooh. i mean was it jd salinger yeah. spent the rest of his life sort of trying to get over catching the ride didn't he yeah absolutely and i think he never really got to come to, came to terms with it and i
1: think he developed a similar attitude to the industry of the you know the publicity industry that bob lind did of just kind of like self sabotaging it and and kind of running away with it but he's i mean he went back bob lind kind of had a comeback in the early noughties i think and so he's still recording and still writing and kind of so basically, kind of, there are recent Bob Lind albums that you can go and discover that are, they're great, you know.
0: Yeah, I heard the, um, I felt like the songs deserved better sound, but I still thought the lyrics were brilliant. I think so, yeah. The melodies, it yeah. was like if they, that I, I, I kind of wished yeah. they could have hooked him up with Sean O'Hagan and let yeah. him produce it. I would have loved to hear that
1: album. <laughs> you should have a word. He's contactable online, so you could get in touch with him and make that your <laughs> next project to get um, you and Sean. to you ah, see, the... I, I would. You know what? There's
0: nothing more I'd love to do.
1: James, thank you so much for uh, bringing such a a gorgeous album and and an album that you Thanks know me on, deserves sure. to be brought back into the limelight. And uh, I really, uh, really appreciate you bringing it on. Thank you.
0: Yeah, same here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club 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 with me, with James James, 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 James,
1: Scully. Okay, now we get to the part of the show where we rave about some new records. The first chosen by me is the new one from Alabaster Plume, who was, podcast fans, the first ever guest on the Mojo Record Club. This album is called Come With Fierce Grace, released on International Anthem. Um, And the tracks are, they're taken from the same extensive sessions that led to 2022's much-acclaimed double LP, Gold. And it's an album that, apart from a few guest vocals from um, Momoko Gill, Fallon Eoki and Donna Thompson, is largely made up of raw, live, in-the-room improvised instrumentals. It's less formal, less arranged, less lush than Gold. And I think all the better for it. Anyway, here is the utterly gorgeous Did You Know featuring Momoko Gill and Metashibi and composed. And I should uh, pause here and say, because of the nature of how Alabaster de Plume writes and composes, everybody who appears on the track needs to be credited as a composer. So, and I've never done this before... Composed in the act of performing by Alabaster de Plume, Fallinioke, Rosie Plain, Sarathi Corwar, Tom Skinner, Kanichi Iwasa, James Howard, Tom Herbert, Natalie Payler, Rosa Slade, Ellie Condron, Louisa Gerstein, Matt Webb, Michael Chestnut, Ursula Russell, Conrad Singh, Hannah Miller, Donna Thompson, Matthew Bourne, momoko gill and ruth goller here is the utterly gorgeous did you know featuring momoko gill and metashibi and released on international anthem records sun that never
2: thinks before it shines on me i really love gold uh, as i think you know, most people who heard it did but i think you the key point that by stripping out that sort of lushness and some of the orchestration the, the arrangements to it it actually lands in a far more interesting something weirder, it's darker and it's drier, but they move into a much more interesting space, I thought, and I think that's the key. It's the space they're allowed to give in, in the performances just to kind of take it into a very different... Much for me, anyway, for my it's a, a more interesting era, and you can kind of hear what they're capable of as players and the spaces they can move into and the places they can go with it.
1: On the previous instrumental um, album that came out on International Anthem, To Sigh and Lee... I think that the lushness there and the kind of richness work really well. I think the issue that I have is that I really like Alabaster de Plume when it is solely instrumental or when he has guest vocalists on, and I think I do bristle a little when I get the kind of Inspirational poetry that he sort of attaches to some of these pieces of music because I feel, I feel that the music itself is conveying that message of hundred percent positivity and uplift and community, and I almost feel like it's doing it so well and so successfully that it doesn't need those kind of additional um, texts accompanying it.
2: You wouldn't necessarily need a motivational meme on a John Coltrane album. Well, you do. I I suppose you do get
1: (laughs) you get it on one. You get the chance of a love supreme, a love supreme. And maybe that's kind of like and maybe that is enough. But you also realize that within the music on a love supreme is that message as well, you know. And so, Yeah. yeah, I think it's a balance. And I think it's a kind of balance that he sometimes gets absolutely right. And at other times it feels like it's for me, it's a little too much. This, if there are people listening who kind of feel similarly about him, I would say that this is a great place to jump back in, especially as Chris says, because you really get the sense of kind of like what an incredible group of musicians they are and how that they can kind of create mm. that kind of swirling kind of eerie music of kind of a you know north north africa meets north london kind of um, you yeah, know totally. kind of swirling jazz it's 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 glorious at its best it's absolutely wonderful chris what record have you brought into play today
2: i brought in bird machine by sparkle horse uh, which is the fifth sparkler's album and obviously a posthumous release um i think it'll be coming is it 13 years since smart has took his own life i think i think yeah i think so And I'm generally very wary of records that have been pieced together by what someone's left behind. I mean, obviously there are great examples of them working, you know, Arthur Russell being the chief example. But um, yeah, I I think sometimes when you're not knowing what someone was trying to do with a record or where it was going to go and, you know, people adding new overdubs and stuff, yeah, it sometimes makes me feel a bit uneasy. But I think with this record, um, how it's been done... Um, with his brother and his sister-in-law um, and knowing what he kind of wanted to, with this record to be what his what his aims were with this record that he wanted to make something a bit more of a sort of scrappy straightforward album uh, and then, you know they went to Jason uh, Little from Granddaddy to sort of help them realise what his vision is and, you know, what was sort of going to be and the time they've spent on it it's fantastic it's really, really, really good and it really works and it kind of allays all fears of that sort of thing But I think the key was that they, you know, it's family and friends working on it. And they did know, have an idea, because obviously he did did tracks with Steve Albini and left these recordings behind. But they had a sort of idea of this is what Mark was kind of reaching for, this record. So it's a bit easier to realise.
1: I think you're right. And I think also what you were saying about it works because of the kind of album that he was working on. I mean, I think I was reading according to his, his his brother, Matt, that this was Mark's attempt to kind of almost write a straight up as close as sparkle horse would ever get to a straight up pop record. So with influences like buddy Holly and the kinks and you hear that, but as with Ray Davis, you also hear so much else going on underneath the surface. You hear that tenderness, the sadness, the fragility, but also because it's a pop album, you also get that sense of the euphoric as well. So that kind of all the things that you would have previously expected from a Sparkle Horse album, but at times with a real kind of playful, scrappy pop uplift. Yeah. Um,
2: it's, it's, it's having fun. Yeah, on Quarto, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Which is a, Which is a lovely kind of one of the reasons why I think the record works and why it's kind of it's so nice to hear it, you get a sense of somebody who is like just in the joyous moment, which is which is a lovely way to remember anybody.
2: Mm. And also it's been one of the joyous moments on it for me is that I got quite excited when the a preview copy landed and I wasn't aware. One of the songs is called Listening to the Higsons, which I was unaware uh, is a was it nineteen eighty two? Robin Hitchcock B-side. And for a small moment, I thought that Mark Linkus in another universe had been a fan of the Higson's.
1: Well, let's play a little bit of that. um, But let's start with um, the utterly gorgeous Evening Star Supercharger, written by Mark Linkus and released on Anti Records. And we'll play a little bit of that. And then we'll play a little extract of listening to the Higson's Written by Robin Hitchcock, performed by Mark Linkus and Sparkle Horse, and released on Anti Records. So- In a way, those two tracks kind of sum up the two the two sort of extremes of the record. You've got that kind of, that sort of trademark kind of lush, fragile, introspective kind of sparkle horse sound, and then you've got something very kind of daft and poppy and throwaway.
2: Yeah, I was going to say daft is the word that I would read for. on there. Yeah, I mean, it really, I mean, it's a daft song. I actually dug out the V-side when I sort of, tracing back to it and it's a really lo-fi daft song about mishearing a lyric on a radio to start off with and he's it, it hasn't really changed much and it is just he's just thrashing through a daft song in a slightly more yeah. daft way
1: which is great it's great
2: da- daft, yes daft punk.
1: <laughs> okay you have been listening to James Skelly, Chris Catchpole and myself Andrew Mayle that was the Mojo Record Club we hope to see you at the next one you can all join in And look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for
0: the next episode. You've been listening to the Mojo Record Club. Hammering the Cramps